Well, thank you, Eric, for your testimony. Um, I just praise God that, you know, through your failings and through your second choices, you know, God was able to grant you salvation, uh, put people around you that uh, were persistent and um, were instrumental in leading you to Christ. Um, thank you for sharing that with us. And we uh, just continue to pray for you and for uh, CCF and pray for uh, a lifetime of ministry together. Thank you to all the servants at VBS who serve so faithfully uh, for this past week, um, sowing the seed of the gospel in our children's hearts. There's so many things going on, uh, Kazakhstan team, Czech team, OC team. Um, please continue to be in prayer. Uh, Mexico is in a week. Uh, there are many uh, needs and many requests, and so uh, please pray in the next two, uh, two or three weeks or so for all these various things. And on top of that, uh, we have our uh, annual uh, summer retreat coming right around the corner as well. So it's a busy time, but uh, busy in a in a very good uh, in a very good way. So if you will turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Titus, chapter two. Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, and read along as I read aloud. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Verse 15, if you want to throw that in there. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Titus 2, 11 through 14. Our topic this morning is very simple. That's the most foundational, most elemental truth in life. And that is the grace of God in the life of men. In purely natural terms, and I was thinking about this uh, over the past week just because of how hot it's been, um, the single most important source of life, you know, of energy on our planet is what? Is the sun, right? It's said that, however that this single most important resource of life and energy in about 5 billion years, according to scientists' calculations, um, our sun will completely exhaust its fuel, uh, completely exhaust its hydrogen, um, and it will burn out. The light of the sun will be snuffed out, and it will turn from what they call a red giant to finally a, uh, a white dwarf, and will end up becoming uh, kind of... Um, a lesser shadow of its former glory. And that will be the end of our sun, the very source of life, the very source for really everything that makes our planet what it is, uh, naturally speaking, physically speaking, will be extinguished. The single most important source of life and energy for the Christian, however, is inexhaustible. Long after the sun is gone, long after this world is gone, there will still remain that power that runs us because that power is not of ourselves. It is, as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, it is the gift of God. It is God's grace. There are many definitions for this term. I mean, it's such a simple term, sometimes we forget its definition, but plainly stated, uh, God's grace is God's Holy, undeserved goodness. His holy, undeserved goodness exercised on behalf of sinners. And the thing is, it's not just that you know, mankind has no merit. We need to go a little bit farther than that. Farther than that. Having no merit almost, mean, almost seems to say that man is neutral. But God's grace reaches out and extends to those who have demerits to those who were not and are not looking for God. Now, that's an entirely different picture. It's not just that you know, they have nothing good. 
It's that we have nothing, it's just that we have everything bad about us until God's grace extends its loving arms and captivates us and saves us. Then and only then is there anything good and of course all of that, again, is God's grace. Totally undeserved, not because we didn't do anything good, not because we didn't earn it, but because exactly the opposite. We did everything to deserve the opposite of grace, which is judgment, which is wrath. So when we think about grace in that way, and we think about it in our lives, it compels us, I think, to say, as John Newton said, John Newton, the famous pastor, hymn writer, said, if I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some that I had expected to see there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. Is your testimony one of a life running on and driven by God's grace? Or did you begin the Christian life, for the believers out there, did you begin this Christian life by grace? And are you now proceeding to live out the Christian life by your effort and by your merit? Galatians 3.3 As we look at our text this morning, we are presented with really the reason for all of the practical instructions that we find in the Bible and really all the practical instructions, of course, specifically speaking, found in the book of Titus, verses 1 through 10. All the teachings on the Bible, but specifically here about older men and women, younger men and younger women, about uh, bond slaves, they find its source The teachings find its source in verses 11 through 14. All the practical instructions and wisdom found in this letter are rooted here in the truths presented in verses 11 through 14. This is the theology behind the practice. This is the doctrine behind the application, if you will. Behind the practical exhortations Paul gives to Titus to give to his church. This is how people should order their lives. Why? Because of verses 11. Through 14, because of all the glories of God's grace in salvation through Jesus Christ that are unfolded here for us. In verse 11, we'll see, uh, we see uh, the past aspect of grace. It said, God's grace has appeared. Past tense. In verse 12, we'll see, uh, we see the present aspect of God's grace. It says that grace, that the grace of God is teaching us presently to deny this and to live this way. And we also see the future aspect of God's grace in verse 13, where it talks about looking for the return of Christ, the blessed hope, and the appearing of the glory of Christ Jesus. So now now let's look at our text, uh, verse 11. Look at the first major point in our outline. As simply put, that God's grace has appeared. God's grace has manifested itself. The word for appeared, or has appeared in the NAS, in, in the Greek is from the uh, from the uh, from the word from which we get the word um, the, the word we get epiphany. Excuse me, the word epiphany means that God's grace has become visible, has been made known, has been brought to light. It's not that God's grace didn't exist before, but it's that now in Christ Jesus, God's grace has been has been fully realized, as it says in John one seventeen. Grace and truth. It's almost like like a second birth of grace. It was always there, but man, when Jesus came, and Jesus lived, and Jesus taught, and Jesus died and was raised again, it's like grace was new-fashioned. Like grace that they had never almost seen before. Grace in a startlingly clear and uh, revealing light. That's what happened when Jesus Christ came. He brought grace to that kind of light. Grace had never shone so brightly as in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And if you also look at that verse, it says that when this grace dawned anew in Christ, it didn't just come, but it came with a bang. And what it came was with salvation to all men. To all men. In Titus 3, uh, verses 4 to 6, just in the next chapter, Paul writes this. He says that when the kindness Another grace word. When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. Again, talking about the first coming of Christ, just like Titus 2.11. When that appeared, what happened? He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, 
And he goes on to say what that mercy, what that salvation looked like. In verse 7, he tells us that being saved is equal to being justified by God's grace. Being declared righteous, apart from anything that we do, being declared righteous because when we believe, Christ's righteousness is reckoned to our account. Declared once and for all righteous by God, not on the basis of what we did, but on the basis of what Christ did. And we are united with that by faith. And so when we put our faith in Christ, we are recipients of grace. Right? We are saved by His grace. We are saved by His mercy. We are saved by His kindness and by His love. That's grace. And what it does, what it does is it eliminates all human attempts at gaining favor with God. All human attempts at gaining any merit in God's eyes. All attempts at knowing God and seeking God that focus on who man is and what man can or cannot do. Because it's grace. Titus 3.5 says, again, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Meaning what? We have no righteousness. Our righteousness or good deeds, apart from Christ, count for what? Count for nothing. They are as filthy rags, Isaiah says. Because what matters to God, what matters to God, not just in conversion, but what matters to God throughout the Christian life, all the way to the end, is His mercy, His love, and His kindness. What matters to God is then our recognition of our utter sinfulness before Him, our moral and spiritual bankruptcy, and then as we come to the end of ourselves, we come to the beginning. We come to the beginning of God's grace. We come to the beginning of a, of a rich downpour of grace that showers us, that washes us clean from our sin, that brings us into a relationship with God. And if you understand that, you understand grace. You've experienced it, and now you are a believer. And let me tell you, if you haven't experienced that, I'd invite you to see yourself, not in light of other people, I'd invite you to see yourself in light of God. See yourself truly before a holy God. And can you say to yourself that, yes, I can stand before such a God? See yourself before a holy Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross. And can you say to yourself, yes, I deserve that. Yes, I deserve to enter into your heaven. See yourself in light of the cross. See yourself in light of who God is and what He has done. Well, with that, God has not just dispensed His grace in Christ and doesn't have just gift, 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 gifted it out, hasn't poured it out on us and kind of left us at our initial conversion, at our salvation. But God's grace and salvation through Christ not only has brought salvation, but really has brought a new way of living. It's ushered in a new way of life. You see that verb there in verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live. That is the main verb. That is the focal point of the instruction that God's grace is giving us. It is the main theme of grace's class. And you'll see that built around this idea of to live, of living, like, uh, if you will, two, two engines on a rocket or a plane to deny and looking for the return of Christ. These are these two other actions that kind of more fully explain or more fully um, elaborate what living in God's grace looks like. These twin actions around living reinforce what it means to live in grace. And they will take us all the way from the past, from our conversion, all the way to the glorious future when our salvation is complete. And so we come to our second point in our outline. Let's examine all of these actions, all three of these actions in more detail. Part two, point two, is that God's grace is instructing us. God's grace instructs. God's grace teaches. That's verses 12 through 14. God's saving grace has appeared in Christ, but, note, it doesn't end. It continues to instruct. Here then, you're going to look at grace personified as a teacher. Think of God's grace as your teacher. 
And God's grace enrolls us in this continuing education program. You can never get out of it. Someone said, no one ever graduates from the school of God's grace in this life. And if you ever think that you graduated or if you have graduated, you know, come and talk to us. We'll try to correct your theology. You're never going to get a diploma. You're never going to... You're, you can never really... Um, you can never really advance to the next stage, next grade. This is it. There's one grade, one level. And really, in the end, everyone gets the same grade. Right? And that's God's grace. And God's grace has a special curriculum. We talked about it, right? The main point. How we ought to live. How should we then live in light of God's grace in Christ Jesus? That's verses 12 through 13. First then, God's grace teaches us that we've left behind something and we're leaving it behind again and again. Verse 12 tells us, uh, answers the question, what have we left behind? Verse 12 says, God's grace is instructing us now to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. To deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Really, you can translate it this way. Having denied. Having denied. We have denied, we have renounced once and for all these things. We have given it up. Everything that is contrary to God, everything that um, shows a lack of proper fear, a proper reverence for God, we've put it on the back. We've cast it aside. We've said once and for all to our worldly desires, a big no. 1 John 2.16 What are these things? These are our earthbound passions. These are our earthly cravings. These are the manifestations of ungodliness. You want to know what ungodliness looks like? Don't look at just, you know, the, the evening news and all the, you know, all the crimes and murder and robberies and everything else that you see out there. Don't look at the actions. If you want to look at ungodliness, you look at the heart. Ungodliness looks like worldly desires. Take a look at the desires that shape the world, that drive the world, that motivate the world. And as for believers, these same desires that drove you once, we've definitively made a break with these when we trusted in Christ. But how about now? Because if God's grace is instructing us, and we have denied it, the, impl- the implication is, is that God's grace is continuing to tell us, deny, and to deny over and over again. How about now? Have you said no lately? Have you starved the flesh and fed the spirit? Because the world is bombarding us every day with a message of self-promotion, of self-glorification, a message of everything and anything you want at your fingertips with one keystroke, with one button. It says you are in control. It says you can have it your way and you can have that all the time. And so easy for us to say yes. But have you said no lately? No to self. No to things that rob you of your joy in Christ. No to things that diminish your love for people that moves you into outward service. No to things that quench or that kill your desire for prayer and for the Word. I mean, isn't it true that your desire to say yes to spiritual things is completely undermined by your saying yes to self and to the world all the time? Isn't that why our spiritual barometer is so low? It's not because, you know, we don't really love God enough. It's not because we don't know the truth. We do. We believe it. It's not because we don't do enough good holy things. It's because we don't say no. And we keep saying yes. We have no filter up. And we let all these things come in. And we think that's going to leave us unharmed. More importantly, a no attitude towards spiritually degrading things is, it's not just like this stiff-lipped and cold denial. The stoic no, I'm above it, and that's it. You coldly move on. But really it's a hot-blooded and zealous hatred of those things that are opposed to God. A hatred of those things. Because if you are a lukewarm denier of sin, then you are a lukewarm embracer of holiness. And that's the bottom line. Now take a look at the two objects of denial. Ungodliness and worldly desires. This is key because what it teaches us is that 
just say no is not enough. You remember the massive anti-drug campaign in the 80s? Just say no. Everywhere you turn, just say no. You don't really understand it, but all you're supposed to do is just say no. Whatever the cost, whatever it is, just say no. Uh, posters everywhere, commercials everywhere. It was a massive propaganda campaign. Just refuse drugs. And honestly, of course, we can't say that's a wrong message in and of itself. It's not. It is the right message. But really, is that the right emphasis? I mean, will the drug problem, just to pick on that, will it ever be solved by commands not to take drugs? A former drug czar was saying that, you know, the propaganda campaign during the 80s, that was all well and good, but it really didn't take drug dealers off the streets. It didn't really stop shipments coming in from Mexico and Latin America. What happened was, he, uh, he said that he was able to stop one aspect, one part of the, of the, um, of the drug trafficking uh, through going to those who made the chemicals, to the factories overseas in other countries, not in Latin America, who were making chemicals necessary to make, I believe the drug was uh, barbiturates. And so nowadays you never hear about barbiturates. You know why? Because back in the 80s, the drugs are went to these countries, went to these factories and told them, do not sell these things anymore to strange, you know, Latin American figures who want 50 million tons of these things. Because, wake up, it doesn't make sense. He went to the root of the problem. The root of the problem was these factories making these chemicals that went into making drugs. Right? That's why we have such a problem with um, methamphetamines right now, with amphetamines, because we're not going to the source of the problem right? on the law enforcement side. We're just treating the symptoms, not the disease itself. That's the age-old problem. Likewise, with our sins, we just say no to ungodly acts. Yes, that's a good thing. We need to say that, right? We need to say no. But let's go deeper. Let's cut a little bit deeper. Have you said no? And are you saying no, not just to actions, but are you saying no to your desires? Are you saying no to the things in your heart? Are you continually renouncing what Timothy, what Paul calls harmful desires in 1 Timothy 6, 9? Harmful desires that kill your appetite for Christ. Take your eyes off of Christ and fix them on the things that are passing away, the things of this world. As Paul says in that very same verse, it's not that money is evil in and of itself. It's the love of money that gets you into trouble. It's the aspiration for money. It's making money an object of worship. And you can turn that, turn that and say that to anything. Anything good, anything neutral. In and of itself, it's not bad. But it's the aspiration or the desire for it. Let me ask you, are you leaving behind envy? Are you leaving behind jealousy? Are you leaving behind covetousness? Are you leaving behind pride and heart adultery? and greed, and anger, and desire for approval and praise by others, leaving behind vanity, leaving behind discontentment? Are you just fighting an external battle? The real battle takes place inside. God's grace instruct us, instructs us to deny all of it. And really that grace is available to all of us to lay hold of and to use for these spiritual heart needs. You fight sin with grace. You don't fight sin with rules and regulations. You fight sin with grace. Romans 6 tells us that very clearly. You are under grace. And as you do, as you fight with more and more grace, true heart obedience will inevitably and naturally arise in your life. Don't seek obedience apart from grace. No, don't seek obedience apart from prayer. Don't seek obedience apart from yielding yourself to God and asking Him for help. Well, God's grace and its life-changing instruction doesn't stop with just the negative. Christians get into trouble for this all the time. We're just so negative. We're so against everything. What are we for? What do we affirm? The negative is where we begin. The Christian life begins at denial, right? You have to deny yourselves, take up the cross, follow Him daily. Matthew 16, 24. But there is a positive instruction under point uh, 2 the second one, living now. There is a positive instruction. This is the core of Grace's curriculum, living now. One commentator writes that the main thing that Grace teaches us is the positive lesson on how we should live. Anyone who says being a Christian is all about not doing this and not doing that 
is dead wrong. Christianity is preeminently a positive faith. It is an affirming faith. It's a faith that stands out for something, not just against things. It is a religion. It is a relationship with God. And it directs our hearts and lives towards an entirely positive direction, which is holiness and living for Christ. To the text then, verses 12 to 14, to live, like we said before, is the main verb. We deny our worldly desires continually. We deny them once. We deny them again. We look forward to the return of Christ to complete our salvation. But meanwhile, this is what we should do. This is how we should live. And the text states for us there three character qualities of someone living under grace. Three character qualities of someone living under grace. And in the Greek, these qualities are emphatic. They come before the verb. Why does Paul do that? Paul does that because he wants our eyes to fix on these things very, very intently, very carefully. The first word is sensibly. Sensibly. This is used four other times, just in this little book of Titus alone. The idea here is in a self-controlled and thoughtful manner. In a self-controlled and thoughtful manner. It's a life in balance. It's a life of poise. Having been freed from sin through the grace of God, the believer is then able to actually gain some measure of mastery over himself, over his actual heart. This man, the sensible man, the sensible Christian makes decisions based on biblical principles and not emotion, not gut feeling, not intuition, and not merely on experience. We can say that this, this man is thoughtful and careful in everything that he say, says and does. This is the sober man. This is the sensible man. The sensible man has moved from self-centeredness to self-control. Sensibly. Secondly, righteously. Righteously, or maybe in some of your texts it says justly. In Titus 1.8, the same word is translated there, elder qualifications. He is to be just. He is to be just. The idea here is very simple. A man who lives in an upright and blameless manner regarding other people in relationship to others, he's upright and blameless. A student of God's grace, you don't just merely experience grace inwardly in your heart. You get saved, you get changed. You have new desires, new affections, a new goal in life, new hope. But that grace moves him outward because he's now obligated to practice grace to all men. That is a just and righteous man. He's obligated to, to be ready for every good deed, Titus 3.1. And he is just and he is fair, equitable right? in all his dealings with men. You think of the holy man of Psalm 15.4 who swears to his own hurt and does not change. That's a man of integrity who keeps his word no matter what. And that's the kind of man, a righteous man, is someone that you cannot attach blame to anything that he says or does. He's not just sensible, but he's fair, he's just. Third word is godly. Godly. Titus 1.1 and 1 Timothy 6.3, they both refer to doctrine and the knowledge of the truth which conforms to godliness. Which, form, which conforms to godliness. We see that a godly life is one that has been massively impacted by the Word of God, and specifically by the Word of God's grace, the Gospel. The truth about Christ received changes you. You take doctrine in, you receive it by faith, and it impacts your life. It transforms you. It causes you to be godly. What does that mean? To live in reverence of God. To live in reverence and obedience to God. It's a life of Open, committed devotion to God. Open, committed devotion. You have nothing to hide but your faith. It is a Godward life. Godward life. As such, as such, that's a life that draws from the well of our resources in Christ. If you look at Second Peter, you don't have to turn there. Second Peter one three says this that God's divine divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Everything pertaining to life and godliness is there in Christ. 
And so a godly man draws upon these spiritual resources for his spiritual life. Where else would he go? A godly life shows the world that you are living in God's grace, focused on grace, dependent on grace. And a life of grace then is truly God-centered. And it's continuously shedding a living light on the truth that Jesus died for our sins, He was raised again, and He will return. A life of grace brings that truth to light. And it brings it to light through reverent obedience. Obedience to God's Word. Obedience to what has been revealed. If you look at the end of verse 12, after those three character qualities, look at what it says. It says, in the present age. It teaches us how we may live, how we ought to live in the present age. This time reference here in verse 12. There are two significances, really, why Paul would put this uh, here in the present age. The first significance is that Grace's educational program is not something for later. It's not something for heaven. It's not something for when you get more mature. It's not something for when you have more doctrine. It's not something for when you have more time on your hands. It's not something for when you've uh, acquired more spiritual maturity under your belt. It's for now. It's for the here and it's for the now. Grace teaches us how to live today, right now, in this age. But secondly, more vitally, Grace's curriculum of how to live is, is, is all geared and shaped for a life in this age, in a world like ours. In a world like ours. The age of man from the fall to the second coming of Jesus Christ is characterized by sin. And in order to live, in order to be equipped, and in order to survive spiritually, fully intact in this age, God's grace has tailor-made and packaged this instruction for us, for now, for this time, for this world, for this age. This is necessary and ever-relevant spiritual instruction. This will never get old. This will never get old. And so the training grace gives us regarding living now focuses on our relationship to self, sensibly. It focuses on our relationship to others, righteously, and it focuses on our relationship to God, godly. That's his instruction for us. And if you will, just take a quick mental inventory of your grade in this positive education of God's grace. How are you doing in these three areas? How are you living sensibly? Have you mastered yourself, your desires and your emotions? Do you do what's most respectable and honorable, selfless, beneficial to others? First Peter 1.13 talks about a man who gathers up all the loose ends of his mind so as to be ready for action, ready for holiness. First Peter 1.13 well, your, your thoughts are so distracted, you're all over the place. You need to gird up the loins of your mind. How about righteously? Are you just and equitable to all men? You're not a respecter of persons. You don't play favorites. You're not prone to blind loyalty. You don't give in to flattery. You're not vindictive. You're not greedy for gain but you're dealing justly with everyone in every circumstance. Righteously. Godly. This is the key. Really, this is truth and practice merging at one place, really forming a very clear example of someone living under the Lordship of Christ. Godly. I think that Jesus himself is the preeminent example of a man who was godly, a godly person, a God-centered person. Because what did Jesus always say about his mission and about his work? He came to do whose will? Not my will, but your will be done. He came to do the will of the one who sent him. He speaks the words that are given to him by the Father. Right? I speak these things as the Father has taught me, John 8, 28. That is a godly man. Open, committed devotion to God. Everything in his life focused on God. Well, what is your life now? Is it transformed and brought up, reared up, educated, disciplined and instructed by the grace of God? Second Peter 3.18 Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Believers in this room, are you finding your lives increasingly shaped by the hands of divine grace? This making you better husbands and wives, better shepherds of your children, husbands better shepherds of your wives, wives better respecters of your husbands, better parents, better workers, better students, sons and daughters, siblings and ministers of the church. 
If you're lacking in any of these areas, you need grace. You don't need more books. You don't need more programs. Just one program, God's grace. Where you see lack, ask the Spirit to apply that precious grace. But for others of you, some of you are devoid of God's grace entirely. Perhaps you think you are in God's grace. But you're really not, because if you look at your life, you're entirely self-consumed, self-focused, not godly. You're self-reliant. Your life is all over the place. It's not sensible. You're not a righteous man. You're empty of real direction, empty of real hope. If you receive the grace of Jesus Christ by faith, you will be made entirely new. And this positive instruction in verse 12, positive instruction for holiness, will become precious words to you. And will become then joyous words. Words that you will want to live out. Words that are sweet. Words that make sense. And words that are appropriate and right for your life. Well, we've left behind and we are leaving behind. We're living in a manner worthy of Christ. But as we live this way, we are looking forward with our eyes straining ahead. And that's lesson three. The third action under point two. Looking ahead. Really, it's another part of living now. Because as you're living, you're looking. Right? You're not actually in the future, but your eyes are on the future. But we want to really distinguish this as a third lesson in God's uh, grace's training regimen. Looking again at verse 13, that you are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because we are recipients of God's first grace, we want and we need that final grace, right? That, that completing grace. The grace that will complete and perfect our salvation. The grace that will usher us into an eternity with Christ in heaven. Let me just tell you how important this is. You know, we see all around us the emptiness and shallowness of worldly living. We see the deadness of man's wisdom and philosophy and political ideologies. We see the vanity of pursuing even like health and wealth, prosperity, success. We see all these things as empty and fruitless and so we look ahead. As believers, we eagerly await, another way to translate this, eagerly await the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the truth will reign, when righteousness and justice will reign, when everything will be made as it is supposed to be. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9-10 talks about them turning to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And what are they doing? To wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 says that believers are awaiting eagerly the revealing, the revelation, the unveiling of the full glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20, a very familiar verse, for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly Wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This appearing is all one event. This is our hope. The first appearance of Christ was grace bringing salvation to all. The second appearance of Christ will be the unveiling of God's glory and the fulfillment of all the promises that God has made to those who are in Christ Jesus. That is our blessed hope. The appearing of Jesus Christ. It's an objective hope. It's not, oh, I hope He comes, as we would say, right? I just wish He comes. But this is really an objective hope. This is the object hoped for. When we say, what is your hope? What's the hope that is in you that makes you live this way? We say, it's Jesus Christ. It's this hope that's laid up in heaven. It's the hope of this righteousness. It's Christ Himself in His full glory. His coming is our blessed hope. It's blessed because when He comes, all our blessings will be fulfilled in one fell swoop. And indeed, this verse teaches that it is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the deity of Christ. He is the one that's going to appear. He who is of the same essence of God. He who was from the beginning, who explains and interprets the invisible God, the one true and living God and Lord Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That's who's coming. That's the one who will usher in all of our blessings. Do we say with Paul and John, as they said in their, in their writings, Maranatha, O Lord, come. In 1 Corinthians 16.21, Revelation 22.20, 20, 
Do we say, O Lord, come? Do we eagerly await? That's the posture of believers. This expectation that's hungry. You know, this expectation that's like a craving. It's a passionate awaiting. Maybe we don't want Him to come. Because His radiance, His light will expose too many things we don't want anyone to see. Let alone God Himself. And we forget that God sees everything anyway, right? Maybe we don't, we don't want Him to come because we know that so much of our Christian lives are lived by our own will, by our own might, by our own intellect, rather than by a total reliance on God, on His grace. And so, all of this Christian work that we've built up will be like a castle in the sand when the storm comes. It'll be all washed away. Our souls might be saved, but we've really done nothing for Christ. We've ever done, done all of it for ourselves. Or maybe it's just because we love the world too much. We just love the things of this world. We just can't part from this life. We just can't imagine anything beyond this. Oh, that's a very shallow, a very superficial, and a very sorry Christian life, brothers and sisters. Or maybe we've never really placed our hope in Christ alone. Maybe our hope is only in this life and not in the resurrected Christ, not in the resurrected God and Savior. He is the hope of your glory. There is no glory. There is no eternity in heaven. There is no eternal life apart from Him. Titus tells us twice. Titus 1.2. Titus 3.7. 1 Peter 1.13 calls you to fix your hope completely. Put all of your eggs in that one basket. All of your hope. Completely on the grace to be brought to you at the return of Christ. At the revelation of Christ. We hope totally on this future grace because that future grace will finish what the present grace right now is doing. Have you fixed your hope completely on the future grace? We hope that our eyes would be fixed upon eternity, no, fixed upon heaven, would that our hearts be hungering after the glories of a future with God. And what purity there would be in our lives, 1 John 3, 2. You know, what faithfulness in trials what integrity in preaching and ministering the Word, 2 Timothy 4, 1-2. What fighting faith, persevering faith that would last to the end, 2 Timothy 4, 8. What integrity and character our lives would have, 1 Timothy 6, 14. What more would we get done if we lived this way, if we looked ahead once in a while? C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says this, If you read history, you'll find that Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this, in this world. You want to know why you are so ineffective in this world? It's because you have put all your eggs in one basket in this world. Fix your hope completely on the grace that is to be brought to you. And even as we end in a sense, even as Paul ends that verse on the end, on the return of Christ, he can't help but return to the main thing in verse 14. He can't help but return to the cross of Jesus Christ. And here in verse 14, we are brought back to that first grace, that sanctifying grace, the grace that saved us, the grace that makes it possible for us to live, for us to look ahead, for us to deny, for us to be perfected when Christ returns. This is the first grace. The first grace is a foundational grace. It's the foundation, but because from that grace flows all the grace you'll ever need to live for Christ in this present age, right? That's the fountainhead. That's the spring of all that we need, all the grace that we need for now. And for those of you who have yielded, who have believed, who have entrusted yourself in this grace, to this grace, what does it look like? What does it mean? Take a look with me at verse 14. It means this. It means that God, Jesus Christ, gave Himself for us. He handed Himself over to uh, for, over for us, 1 Timothy 2.6, for us, for those of you who believe. It is an act of pure grace. He voluntarily, willingly gave up His life to mankind. This is the steep cost of Christ's redemption. And He did this for us, for, that preposition there, on behalf of us. Substitution, right? Substitution. In the rest of this verse, Paul provides the effects of that substitution, of that sacrifice. And as we look at it, you'll say it looks a lot like verse 12. And it looks a lot like 
saying no to this one thing and saying yes to this other thing. And I say yes, that's exactly why Paul put it here. Paul wants us to look back at the cross because he's locking in on why and how we are able to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. The why and the how of living God-centered lives are found in the grace of God that has appeared in Christ, bringing salvation to all men, that has appeared in Christ in the first coming when He died for us. The effects then. What are the effects of this? The effects of Christ's death. Negatively, it is to redeem us from every lawless deed. He purchased us out of the slave market of our sins. Revelation 1.6 that says that Christ loved us and released us from our sins. From every lawless deed, every one of them, every sin, every act of rebellion against God, we're rescued from slavery to sin and to freedom to know and obey the truth. But positively, look there again, positively it says that He gave Himself to purify for Himself a people, to cleanse, to sanctify, like in Ephesians 5, 25 and 26, right? How He washed you in the water of the Word, washed the church. So not only are we kind of rested out of the controlling grip of sin, but we are cleansed of the moral pollution, the defilement of sin. And this cleansing is to make us a people for His own possession. That's a great word there. A people set apart entirely for Him. A people reserved just for Him. And these are people appropriately that are zealous for good deeds. People that are eagerly striving after Titus 2, 1 through 10. People that are eagerly striving after the characteristics of someone who is truly born again. All of the good works God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. We are eagerly, uh, almost jealously, passionately going after these things. The truths of verse 14 are not up for debate. Meaning this, they happened at the cross. This is objective truth. This is cold, hard fact about our salvation. And this is the awesome power of grace on full display. This is what grace does. So we've come back full circle to what it's all about. We started at the cross. We started at God uh, in Christ Jesus coming, bringing salvation to all men. And we are still here, back again at the foot of the cross, which is really the height and the summit of our salvation. And here at the cross, really at the accomplishment of Jesus Christ, what we have is awesome divine grace that empowers you and it empowers me to live righteously, sensibly, and godly. The grace of Christ on the cross, if you trust in it, it blesses you with the ability and the desire to stop living for yourselves, to stop living in your sins, and to live for God and for God alone. 2 Corinthians 5.15 Yet even at the cross, we don't just, in a sense, stay there. We look ahead. We look forward to the final chapter of our salvation, to the finishing work of grace at the, at the return of Christ. It's like we have you know, one view to the left, and that's the cross, and one view forward to the return of the glory of our Jesus Christ. Just one final thought, one final application from all of this. I think it's pretty simple. Let's say this, ever avail yourself of God's grace. Take hold of it. Grace of Christ's past death, grace of God given now through the Spirit in you, grace revealed in all its glory with Christ's return. Cling to that grace, the grace of the cross, the, pleasant, the present grace, and the future grace. I mean, beg for it. Know how weak and helpless you are apart from it. Find yourself deliberately trusting in God's grace. Because as 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Meaning this, all of your salvation, everything good that you do, has been received. You cannot and have not and will not earn it. You cannot and will not ever gain it. You've received it by faith. We need to have the truths of Christ's death, His second coming always before us, 
Like students, you know, on the night before finals, all night, staying all night, trying to cram all of this information into their brains. And that's the posture that we need to be in. Always and ever connecting back up with these truths. For in this way, when you look at the cross, when you look at the grace of God in Christ Jesus, you will find every motivation and every strength to live now. One 19th century pastor wrote on this very passage that the two comings of Christ, first coming in verse 11, second coming in verse 14, they're like two windows in the school of grace. Through the western window, a solemn light streams from Mount Calvary, from the cross. Through the eastern window shines the light of sunrising, the herald of a brighter day. Thus the school of grace is well lighted, but we cannot afford to do without the light from either the west or the east. Let's pray. Father God, we are spiritual beggars at your table. We look to you as a servant looks to his master, as a child would look to their father, as a disciple to their teacher. We look to you, Father God, and we keep seeking until you will be gracious to us. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for shedding your grace abroad, making it available to all men. And yet, Father, you graced us and allowed us and caused us to believe in the truth of Jesus Christ and to become born again in your children. We thank you so much for this grace that continues to make us holy and sanctifies us and that one day will perfect us. Oh, Father God, how much we need this grace. If we ever rely upon ourselves, shame on us. If we ever think that we deserve this or that, shame on us. If we ever think that we are going to minister out of our own might, out of our own strength, out of our own talents and abilities, shame on us, Father, for we trample on your grace. Oh God, make your grace reign in our lives. Make us weak. Make us have to be more dependent upon you. Make us have to be more trusting in you, more reliant upon you as children to their parents. Lord, we thank you for this saving grace that you have gifted to us. We pray likewise that we would then take this grace and share it with others. That the grace of God in our lives would be manifested clearly in all that we say and all that we do. Oh Lord God, may the grace of Christ Jesus ring forth in our hearts and from our lips. In Jesus' name, amen.